0: There was a particular message that continued to pop in my head from time to time as we were working through this series, and it was on the issue of unity, unity in the church, unity in the body of Christ. Psalm 133:1 one says, behold, how good and pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in what? In unity. Man, how good and pleasant that is. We know how unpleasant it is when there's disunity, when there's strife, when there's division. And so there is something so very sweet about unity in the body of Christ because we have something very sweet to be united around, and that is our Savior, our Jesus, our King and our Lord. And that is what our unity is ultimately in. Amen? Now, unity in a church could not be more critical for the health of the church and the longevity of the church. It's necessary. We've got to have unity. Got to have unity. Now, let me just say that unity does not mean offending everybody and running everybody off that doesn't agree until we are left with a group of insulated people who agree on every single point. Some people think that's what unity is. We just need to get everybody out of here that doesn't think just like me until we have our little group, the, the chosen, frozen, you know, just the, our little select camp, and we are united on every single point. That's not unity at all. And that's certainly not what I want here. Make no mistake, we have to be very clear on non-negotiable fundamentals. We have to stand for those things. We have to contend earnestly for those things, for they are always under attack in every single generation, not least of which the one that we are currently living in. But on all things that are not foundational, fundamental to the faith, we need to have grace. And we talked all about that last week, so I don't want to belabor that point. But, just by way of reminder, we need to know what are the things that we must be united on, in, and around, and what are things that we can be gracious and understanding and and differ on. Even this issue of membership in the church, coming into that, I knew that there would be people who would, you know, take issue with it. And, you know, some have even gotten, you know, I would say greatly offended by it. And that was certainly not my heart or my desire for anybody in the church And so just recognizing even something that we would see as uh, something that would hopefully foster more health and strength and unity in the church, even that can become a a point of disunity. So we just have to really be very aware and very on guard. Even if it's something that we don't care for or like, it's not something that's being forced on anybody, you don't have to do it. Um, We ask that if somebody is in a very... uh, high-up kind of position in the church um, or teaching, things like that. That would be something where we would ask people to really you know, take seriously being a, being a member. Um, but nonetheless, we do not want this to become a point of contention or disunity. We certainly don't want anybody to leave the church over it, okay? From my heart to you, that is not something that we want to drive anybody out of the church. And so uh, I say this to say that we have to fight for unity, We have to fight for peace. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? We have to fight for peace. We have to strive for rest in the church. First thing we have to do is we have to fight against our own propensities to be offended or insistent on our own way. I'm just kind of framing the issue of unity right now. This is important. I really want to talk about what unity is and what it isn't before we get into our text but I just want to make clear that it really kind of starts with us because we can be very easily offended. You know, really, just that's human nature, period. But even as Christians, we can be easily offended, and um, it's just something that I've observed over the years, and it can be very true of myself, and um, it's something that we have to be on guard against. You know, there's a saying for pastors that they have to have thick skin and a soft heart thick skin, and a soft heart, because eventually you can end up having a hard heart, because, you know, it's people ministry, it's people work, and you let people down, you upset people, you anger people, people will let you know that, Um, and, you know, over time you can start to develop PTSD as a pastor, you know. I had a sister last week that wanted to come uh, bless me and my wife and encourage us, and uh, she was coming over to the house, and I was thinking, oh, gosh, what have I done? You know, I'm in trouble, and she's going to let me have it. And that wasn't at all what it was. She was truly coming to encourage me. So that just lets me know, man, we got to be on guard. we got to watch this. we got to guard our hearts, and, and we, have to, we have to have thick skin but soft and open hearts towards each other always. Amen? Amen? And so the enemy is working overtime to divide and conquer, even as we speak. Even as we speak in this room right here, right now, the enemy is working to divide and conquer. And you hear of churches that have massive splits and things like that, but I think more times than not, the enemy is just trying to pick people off one person at a time, one family at a time. I think that is how it is most effectively accomplished. The enemy is working. Even right now, you know, there, there are people in this room who are harboring offenses at somebody, whether it's against the leadership or against somebody else in the church. And, um, man, I'm praying that today the Lord would bring some great healing, that he would reveal to us things that we need to recognize, confess, um, maybe offenses that we need to share with other people or, you know, we need to ask forgiveness for, whatever the case may be, because the enemy is working to get a foothold. And we don't want him to have a foothold in this church, right? And this is a pep talk that I will often give pastors and ministry leaders, is that, man, the enemy especially is trying to get after the leadership. We have a bullseye on our back. And so I've seen it happen so many times. People come into ministry, they get raised up into positions of leadership, and that's that's the prime spot. The enemy wants to take out the leaders. And eventually, strife starts to happen between leaders, and resentments build up, and uh, it's just, it's all bad. And you can tell, you can tell in the church, you can tell amongst the leaders when someone's countenance has shifted, when that, that, that love and that openness is just not quite there the way it once was. The offense has happened, and the walls have gone up, and now there's, there's kind of this separation that has taken place. It starts in the heart. It starts there first, right? And then eventually it works its way out. And so this is a very real and present danger that we as Christians have to guard against. And you know what? There are amazing examples of disunity in the church throughout the ages. I mean, just some of it is quite silly and um, it's comical, but it, you almost have to laugh so not to cry the town that I moved here from, Greenville, Tennessee, has a lot of Civil War history in it. It's pretty amazing, actually. But there is a church there where in the war it's split, and there is a northern church and a southern church. And uh, to this day, there is a pastor that pastors both of those churches. And so he pastors the southern church, and then after that's done, he drives down the street a few miles to the northern church and preaches at that church. Now, those congregations to date aren't uh, feuding. You might not know what feuding is. That's a southern thing. We know all about feuding. They aren't probably feuding now, but uh, just still, it's amazing to me. Why why can't those two churches, like, come together? they still got the, it's amazing to me. So anyways, uh, probably one of the most ridiculous examples I've ever heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I heard a pastor tell this story as though it were true. And that is um, a church split that happened over a painting in the church of Adam and Eve, because they had belly buttons in the picture. And there were people who said, "That's not right. They weren't born, they were created. they couldn't have had belly buttons. Take the picture down. And the other people are, "No, no, we, lo- we love this picture. That's, you know we're, we will not." And eventually the church split over this painting. and so um, that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me, but it is uh, shocking and sad. But of course, we all know we have lived through and are still in the the era of COVID. And man, if, there, if we haven't all been firsthand eyewitnesses of disunity through the last couple of years, I mean, it's been real, very real. And there's been uh, so many, you know, different sides, opposing sides. There's really no winning, not that the goal is to win, but, man, it's just a losing battle because there are so many different sides on every single point. And uh, there's, you know, it's just, it's been hard. It's been a hard couple of years. And so um, we all know that what I'm saying is for real. It's a real issue. And uh, it's something that we have to guard our hearts against. We have to pray that the Lord will help us that the Lord would uh, give us the strength to repent of these things and to seek forgiveness or to let a brother or sister know if, uh, if an offense has happened that needs to be addressed. Biblical unity is so important to the heart of God, so important to the heart of God. In fact, God hates disunity and causers of it. In Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, it says there are six things that the Lord hates and Seven, that is an abomination to him. And one of the things listed, the seventh thing listed, is a person who sows discord among the brethren. God hates that. That's an abomination to God. We see unity in the very nature of God, in his very essence. For he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and three persons eternally, co-equal and they have existed from all of eternity in perfect unity and perfect harmony and perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace. And so it's in the very nature of God, unity. And then when God created marriage, God's design for marriage was what? That the the husband, the man would leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two would become what? One flesh. That's right. The two become one. So even in God's design for marriage, we see this sacred unity that God loves, that really reflects God's nature. We know that the unity of marriage represents the sacred union between Christ and the church. Exactly. Between Christ and the church. So this sacred union of marriage represents something even more sacred, which is the union of Christ and His church. And so we see this in the very heart and nature of God, in, His, in who He is, His essence, in His creating all things, and even in marriage itself. Jesus prayed for unity amongst His followers. He prayed in John 17, the high priestly prayer, that we would be one with each other even as we are with Him, as He is with the Father. Now that is amazing. That was the prayer of Jesus, that His followers would be one even as He and His Father are one. Paul admonished the Ephesian Christians to work hard at unity. In Ephesians 4, chap, uh, verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." So Paul says, look, I want you, I beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You call yourself a Christian, you have been called out of darkness into light, you need to live a life that reflects that. And how are you going to reflect that? In lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, bearing with one another, endeavoring, that is working, laboring hard to keep unity, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of Peace. Now, you may not know this, but in Philippians, if someone were to ask you what the theme of that book is, most people would say it's joy, and there's good reason for that. The word joy, I think, is used some 13 times in those four chapters, but it's actually the issue of unity. There's disunity in the church, and so that starts in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. So there it is again, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So there it is. Again, he says you want to live a life consistent with your calling? Then you need to be of one mind, one spirit, striving together, not against each other, but together for the gospel. Amen? And so, even in the church of Philippi, Paul had to deal with the issue of disunity, which leads Paul into that glorious text where we deal with the incarnation of Christ, which we're going to go back there at the end of the, at the, end of the message for our uh, time at the Lord's table. So, having said all of that, how important unity is, make no mistake, there is a time to separate and divide. There are false teachers, there are false prophets, false witnesses out there. They are running rampant. And, you know, we are not to just join hands and link arms with anyone and everyone who names the name of Christ. We're not to do that. There comes a point in time where we must separate and divide over those things that are core essentials to gospel truth, to salvation. If it's a matter of eternal life, you best believe we've got to separate. We cannot, we cannot have a false Christ. We cannot have a false gospel or a different gospel. That's no gospel at all. That's no Christ at all. And so we can't link arms with people who are teaching a false Christ, and they are all over the place. And so we have to be discerning. So as much as is within our power, we are to strive for unity in the body of Christ. You know I can't say much about what's going on out in the world and the churches all around us and the rest of the world, but as for Calvary Napa, I want every one of us to take seriously doing our part, and it starts with each one of us individually in our hearts, and then amongst ourselves, striving together for the gospel, working together for unity. Amen? Amen. And so with that, in the text that we're going to look at today, I would call this a recipe for unity in the church. In Colossians 3, verse 12. We're just going to look at four points. We're just going to be looking at verses 12 through 17, and then we will conclude today at the Lord's table. Okay, so the first point we're going to look at, unity flows from living humbly in light of our election. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's look at verse 12, and we'll talk about it. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved... Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. So notice that Paul appeals to the Christians there in Colossae on the basis of their identity. He says, you are God's chosen ones. You are God's chosen people. You are the called. You are God's elect. Therefore, act like it. Act like it put on tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. That's, that's heavy. And I, I love how the Bible appeals to who we are in Christ, what God has done in us before we are to launch out and act in accordance. Amen? And so it's not be, do these things so that you will be God's elect. It's because you are God's elect, do these things. Now this, this issue of election. I love this doctrine. I love this doctrine and God is so glorified by it. And I'll admit that if we're talking about unity, it kind of goes against all, uh, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive to even talk about this issue because it's something that can be unfortunately divisive in the church is the issue of God's sovereignty and election. But I want us to try to understand this biblically so that we can make the connection here and so that we can walk in unity as we're told to do from the Word of God. And so I believe this is a helpful perspective for us to understand. <clears throat> now, this issue of election. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says to them, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God recognizing, brothers and sisters, that you are the called of God, that you are God's chosen people, you are elect. He says in verse 5, "...for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance." So Paul says, "...I know, we know that you are God's chosen people, you are God's elect, because when we came and preached the gospel, you believed, you responded with much power and the conviction by the Holy Spirit." and that therefore kind of verifies solidifies the fact that God is working, God is drawing, God is calling you. Now, the doctrine of election is intended to ultimately exalt God and humble the called. We ought to be humbled by God's election, God having called us. Why is that? Well, let's just look at the disciples. Man, those those guys were always competing over what? Who's going to be the best? who was the best, who was most worthy to be at Jesus' right hand and to reign with him on high. And everybody was just fighting, jockeying for that position, right? And Jesus would from time to time have to humble them. And at one point in John 15, Jesus says, look, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear much fruit. That's amazing to me. And I'm sure the disciples would have thought that they did choose Jesus. What do you mean? I didn't have a say in this? I I distinctly remember you coming to me and saying, follow me. you know, And I had to consent to that. It was a cooperative effort. But Jesus said, no, no. I chose you. I called you. I appointed you to go and bear much fruit. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And so we're humbled when we realize that God chose us. God called us. Now, this is not intended to be something that produces boasting, because I think sometimes people think, oh, yes, I am the called. You know, I mean, God knew what He was doing when He chose this guy, chose a winner, right? And so that's not at all what that's supposed to be. In fact, it's supposed to be the complete opposite, the complete opposite, because we know that we didn't deserve it. I did not deserve one single good thing that I received from the hand of my Savior. Not only did I not deserve it, there was nothing that I could do to attain it. There was nothing I could do to attain it. I was as helpless and hopeless as I could possibly be. Why do I say that? Well, because that's what the Word of God says. Let me just read this to you. This is how the Bible describes us outside of Christ, before God opened our eyes to the glories of His Son. One, we were called dead in sin. A dead man can't do much. We were dead in sin, Ephesians two, verse ten. We were slaves to sin, Romans six twenty. We were children of Satan, first John three ten. We were under satanic blindness, second Corinthians four four. We were children of disobedience, Colossians three six, and by nature children of wrath, Ephesians two three, by nature children of wrath. So that, that doesn't sound very good, does it? You know, I know that was me. And when I think that was the condition I was in, I think, God, there was nothing in me that could have or would have said yes to Jesus. I, I know that. For, for myself, that much is clear. If it wasn't for the sovereign hand of God that reached down and opened my eyes and called me from darkness into life. Amen? Praise Him. He's worthy of glory. Even the faith that I had to believe had to be sovereignly and graciously given to me. And Ephesians 2 says that. You know, we're saved by faith through grace, and it is not of ourselves, it is a gift. It is a gift, not of works. So that what? No one can boast. No one can boast. We cannot boast. The faith and the grace, it was all the gift from God given to me, given to us, so that we could boast in who? In him, so that we can boast in Christ. And so it's supposed to foster humility in us. And I think there's no greater text that highlight this than First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six. I'll read this to you. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six, Paul says, For consider your calling. There it is. There's that word. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful. Verse 30, it says, And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of who? Because of God. It's because of His gracious love, His sovereign calling, that we are in Christ. And it says, Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Amen? Amen? So there it is. This fosters humility in us. And Paul appeals to election. He says, "Look, you were chosen by God. You didn't choose God He chose you. Therefore humble yourselves. Give God the glory and walk in meekness and long-suffering and kindness and humility and be unified. Amen? Amen. We are God's people. God's chosen people, we must act like that. We must act like that. God chose us in Christ and made us holy. God chose us in Christ and made us recipients of His great love. God chose us in Christ for His own glory and to the praise of His glorious grace. And when you know that, when you can receive that, when you can live your life in light of that, it follows that we would be a very humble people. We would be a people who can walk in unity, walk in love, walk in understanding, walk in patience, forbearing with one another. Recognizing that if it wasn't for God's good love and kindness, man, who knows where we would even be right now. Amen? I know where I would be, and it wouldn't be here. It wouldn't be good. It would be all bad. And so, how can I not but walk in humility when I recognize that? We need to be reminded of that time and time again. All right, well, point two unity flows from walking in forgiveness unity flows from walking in forgiveness i'm telling you it's like the lost art of forgiveness amongst christians we above all are to be the most forgiveness people amen forgiven folks left and right walking in forgiveness verse 13 It says, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So we're to bear with one another. This is to persist, to patiently endure, to tolerate, or even put up with. Sometimes it's just as simple as that, folks. we got to put up with each other and love. Sometimes it's a little easier. Sometimes it's downright excruciating. But we are people and we will get on each other's nerves, we will step on each other's toes. We're going to have bad days and people are going to be recipients of our rage, you know, on those days. And so, we have to give people mercy. We have to give them love. We have to give them the benefit of the doubt. We have to bear with one another. Proverbs 19:11. Man, we need to memorize this verse. It says the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook transgression it is the glory of a man and a woman to overlook transgression to overlook a sin when we are sinned against when we are offended when offense comes knocking at our door what do we do are we able to overlook that to overlook it to to give people the benefit of the doubt isn't that what we want i know that's what i want i would hope that people would give me the benefit of the doubt uh, you know, to, to not immediately get all up in arms and, and ready to throw down, but in love to overlook an offense. The Bible says that's a glorious thing. That's a glorious thing. And so, we as Christians, as followers of the Christ, we need to be quick to overlook offenses. Sure, there are times when we need to go to people and say, You hurt me, you know, or you said this, or you, you know, and, and I need to get this off my heart. Matthew 18. We need to be a church that does that, where we go to one another with our, um, you know, with things. But, you know, there is a sense in which sometimes we just got to get over it. You know what I mean? Stuff falls through the cracks. You know, things happen. People don't always, you know, think clearly, and sometimes people may feel like they got overlooked or they didn't get, you know, this, that, or whatever. Sometimes we have to just say, it's okay. People are human. They forget things. They make mistakes. You know, I'm sure they didn't mean that. I'm sure, you know, whatever. We have to, we have to really start, like, praying that God could give us the ability to walk in it. And look, everything I'm saying to you guys today, I'm saying to myself. As I teach these kinds of things, don't, don't think for a second God doesn't test me in these things. And just all week long, I'm like, oh, man, I need to, like, actually do what I'm teaching about Sunday here in this situation. God, help me, right? And so this is something that we have to be very mindful about, very mindful about bearing with one another. And then Paul says, forgiving one another. Now, let's talk about this issue of forgiveness, Christian forgiveness. First off, he says, if anyone has a complaint, forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint. You know what that means? That means forgiving indiscriminately. If anyone has a complaint, you're not to just forgive the person that you really like a lot. Or forgive the person that you're sure they, you know, they didn't really mean it. But this person over here, I, I quite, I'm quite sure I know how they really are, and I know who they really are, and I know why they really did that, and I don't forgive them. You know what I mean? Like we are to forgive indiscriminately. If anyone has an offense, you know, I think there's a time, there's a time to hear it out and and just simply apologize. Um, I think that maybe sometimes we'll find that if someone comes to you, there's a reasonable explanation. And that can be spoken to and resolved. But nonetheless, we need to be able to go to one another and we need to you know, be able to express these things. And so if anyone has a complaint, he says, Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also forgive. Now that's huge. Christ forgave completely and sacrificially. You know what? I'm so glad Man, I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't, like, keep a record of wrongs, and I'm grateful for the kind of forgiveness that I have in Jesus, and that He doesn't, His forgiveness towards me is not like my forgiveness towards other people so often. Amen? Aren't we grateful for that? Completely forgiven. Completely. Our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That's pretty far. You know, our sins are gone, and it was a once and for all forgiveness. The price that Jesus paid on the cross washed away our sins, past, present, and future forever. Forever. Such is the power of the cross. And so it's important that we recognize that we cannot forgive like this if we don't know Jesus. If you haven't received this kind of forgiveness, there's no way that you can extend this kind of forgiveness. So that's the gospel, folks. It's the good news. We have been forgiven a debt that we could never, ever, ever repay. It's just been forgiven. And Jesus says, the one who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much. And so it starts there. Do you know, Jesus, has your sin been forgiven at the cross? Has your sin been washed away and removed as far as the east is from the west? So you have to know that for yourself first before you're going to be able to extend that to other people. So that's why the gospel is so important. The gospel, it empowers us. By God's Spirit and the recognition of what the gospel has accomplished, what Jesus has accomplished in the gospel, it empowers us to be able to go forth and do for others as Christ has done for us. Amen? And so it starts there. Do you know Jesus? Have your sins been forgiven? Has your debt been erased? Because that's what the cross is really about. The cross is God's judgment. It's God's justice being poured out on His Son, the one and only Son who is the only person in this world who ever has been or ever will be, that was innocent, that truly kept God's law on every single point, was tempted in every way as we yet without sin, and He was the only one who could die in our place and totally, completely, perfectly satisfy God's justice, God's wrath on our behalf. And then rise again from the grave for us. So that if we trust in Christ and we put our faith in His accomplishments, not our own, we'll be forgiven. We'll be forgiven and born again and forever saved. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is that which propels us to be able to forgive. So we are to forgive sincerely, genuinely, and from the heart. Jesus is clear about that. When we forgive, it is to be from the heart. Let me ask you, when we forgive, do we forgive from the heart? Now, I will just say this. Sometimes we have to forgive in obedience and let the heart catch up. Sometimes we are so deeply hurt, so deeply betrayed, so deeply offended and scarred, that the best we can do in that moment is simply obey in obedience. Trusting that in time, God will cause our hearts to catch up. That God will bring healing. That God will bring strength and restoration. And there will come a time when our hearts will be totally clean. Uh, the, all of that will be gone. There will be no bitterness. There will be no resentment. We will have forgiven from the heart. That is the goal. That is the kind of forgiveness we are called to. That's the kind of forgiveness that we need in the church to keep unity flowing. And we have to forgive regularly. Sometimes, sometimes for us, we're human. And so, our forgiveness isn't like Jesus. He forgives once and for all. Sometimes we have to forgive daily against one, one sin. We've been hurt in such a way that we've forgiven them, yes, but then you get up the next day and you're upset all over again. We're just being real, right? We have to forgive them again. And then sometimes it might be a moment-by-moment forgiveness, but we have to keep forgiving we have to keep going back to the cross. And I've had to do this before. I've had to say, God, if I really understand what you have done for me at the cross and just how spiritually adulterous I have been against you, and yet you still forgive me, you still love me, you still died for me knowing that I would be that way, how can I not? How can I not forgive someone who's sinned against me in a way that will never compare to the way that we have sinned against our God? Right? And so. We have to uh, forgive sincerely, genuinely, from the heart, regularly. We have to forgive because we have been forgiven. We have to forgive because we've been commanded to forgive. We have to forgive for love's sake because we love each other, right? We love God, and we love each other. So we're going to forgive each other, right? And we've got to love for freedom's sake. Man, if you are unforgiving, and I know I've met Christians who have been harboring bitterness for decades, I mean, it's shocking to me when I begin to realize how many different grudges they're holding on to from the last 30, 40, 50 years, and they're still building more offenses and grudges as time goes on. They are totally paralyzed, totally crippled, full of bitterness and resentment. That is, that's not living at all. That's no way to live. And um, man, we are to forgive for many reasons, but one of them is so that we ourselves can be set free right? To guard against that root of bitterness that creeps up. And I would say, most of all, we forgive because it glorifies Christ. Amen? Hear me on this now. If I've lost you, let's reel it in. We must forgive because it glorifies Christ. It has been said cynically that if you want me to believe in your Redeemer, you're going to need to start looking a lot more redeemed. Now, that that is biting. I don't like it. It's a sad indictment. Against those who profess Christ and look nothing like the one they profess to follow. And there are plenty of those out there. Plenty of those. But I've also heard it said that we never look more like God than when we forgive. And I love that. Think about that for a second. And one of the most amazing things about our God is that he forgives, that he loves and he forgives, and he did it at his own expense. He paid the price. He did what was necessary to be able to usher in true, complete forgiveness. And so when we forgive each other, we look an awful lot like our Savior. We look an awful lot like our Lord, like our Redeemer. That's how we look redeemed, when we are quick to forgive others, the way our Redeemer has forgiven us. Amen? Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. And so this flows naturally into the next point. The one who is forgiven much, what, remember? Loves much, right? The one who is forgiven much, loves much. So number three, unity flows when love is a top priority. Unity flows when love is the priority. Amen? Fourteen. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So Paul says, above all these other things meekness, humility, kindness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, those things are massive. They are critical. But even above that, love. Love. We must put on love. It's like a garment. When the Bible talks about putting on, we are to put off, we are to take off the old practices, hate, divisiveness, bitterness, uh, you know, all of those things, malice, envy, strife, we're to take all of that off, and we are to put on love, meekness, humility, kindness, long-suffering. We're to be enveloped in these things. It's kind of like a fashion statement, you know? Fashion, it communicates something. A lot of times, I think it can be quite neutral, but I think there are times when people are trying to make a very clear statement about who they are and what they are about based on what they're wearing, Right? And so the same is true for a Christian. What are you wearing, Christian? What are you wearing? When someone sees you, do they say, man, that person is a loving person? Or do they say, man, that person is a hostile person? That person is an angry person? That person is a self-righteous person? That person is, you know, about all of these other things, but there's nothing there that communicates Christ. There's nothing there that communicates love. There's nothing there that communicates a desire for unity and peace. There's nothing there that communicates joy. We gotta. What are we wearing, folks? What are we wearing? We're to put on love. Why? Because Paul says love is the bond of perfection. The bond of perfection. Now, bond, what does that mean? Well, it's like glue, right? When something is bonded together. And we know what it is if we are to bond. And so we're to be connected, interconnected, close, tight-knit. That's the idea of bond, right? And we're told that it is the bond of perfection. That word perfection means maturity or completion. So what Paul is saying here is that love holds everything together. Love is at the center of it all. All of these other things are going to flow from people who are filled with love. You know God's love. You love God. You walk in His love. You love one another that really is the bond of perfection that holds everything together. And when we are walking in love, we're going to be able to walk in unity. Amen? If we are not walking in love, there's not going to be unity. And when we are tempted to walk in disunity, we need to recalibrate and remember we love each other. We love each other. We love God and we love each other. We're not to fight each other. We're not to separate from one another. We are to hold together. Love is the greatest motivator. God saved us in love, and we obey because we love. Jesus said, if you love me, what? You're going to keep my commandments. You're going to keep my commandments. Why? Because we love him. Because Why do we love him? Because he first, what? Loved us. He first loved us. And so it's all about love. That's why it's so important for us to understand God's love. And unfortunately, a lot of us, we don't understand God's love. Sometimes when I hear people describe their kind of notion of God and forgiveness and love, oh man, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. That's no God of love at all. A.W. Tozer in his book, the, um, the Knowledge of the Holy, he kind of opens up by talking about your view of God is the most important thing about you. That will determine everything. And so do you know God to be a loving God, a God who is full of forgiveness and quick to forgive, a God who will forbear with you and carry you to the very end. Do you know a God of love like that? Is that your God? So we have to know God's love in order to be able to extend this kind of love. If, we, if, if God to us is not a God of love, then we are not going to be a people of love towards one another. We're going to be something else. And so I hope you guys hear me on this. We must recognize God is love. It's, in his, it's his very essence and being. God does what He does because He is love. And so we've got to know that. We have to have this God of love. We have to be born of Him. And if we are, then it follows. You know, 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins love covers a multitude of sins so we have to have the love of god we have to know the love of god for that to be true this kind of goes back to the whole um overlooking an offense you know it's the glory of a man to overlook offense well love covers a multitude of sin love gives the benefit of the doubt love is quick to forgive love is quick to show mercy and grace and understanding love is quick to persevere I don't think it could be any better spelled out than in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Mark that down. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. You know, it's interesting that word resentful there, it literally means keeping no records of wrong. Are we keeping a record? Are we record keepers? Do we have a long list of things that people have done to us for years, maybe even decades? That's not love. That's not the love of God. God says that I have forgotten your sin, never to be remembered again. Isn't that amazing? God says, you keep bringing it up, but I distinctly remember forgetting that. Why do you remember it? Now, if God has forgotten our sins, why are we so quick to remember everybody else's sin? If God has forgotten our sin, why are we so quick to remember everybody else's sin? Love doesn't do that. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. You know... Most of us in here know Pastor Vince, and he went home to be with the Lord recently. But I don't know anybody who modeled that more than that man of God. And I think a lot of us in here, we know that. Man, that guy saw the best in people like no one else I have ever known. And he knew how to overlook offense. He knew how to believe the best, hope the best, see the best. And many of us in this room are recipients of that. And I, I have to say, I'm ashamed because there were times where people you know, would come in off the street and you, you've got their number. I already know. I'm not going to get hustled. You know, I'm not going to get duped. But man, Pastor Vance, he'd sit them down. He'd talk to them. He'd hear their story. He'd share the gospel. He'd give them a Bible. He would you know, take care of whatever need they may have had. And uh, man... That just put me to shame time and again, and, and all of us pastors, and that, that brother will never be replaced. He's irreplaceable, you know? And so I just, I think, I, I know firsthand how powerful that is. I know firsthand how powerful it is when we can walk in that kind of love, amen? All right, moving on. Unity flows from letting peace and gratitude rule. Unity flows from letting peace and gratitude rule. Verse 15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a time when we had no peace. I, had no, I was at enmity with God, with my Creator and my Maker. Now, the world claims to have peace, but all it is is maybe a temporary lapse in chaos uh, or, or disturbance momentarily, but that's not peace. You know, peace isn't just the absence of chaos. It's so much more than that. And Jesus says, I'll give you peace, not as the world gives, do I give, you know, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but be a good cheer. What he's overcome the world. And in him, the Prince of peace, we have true peace. We have peace with God and we have the peace of God. Now, having said that, if we have peace with God, how in the world does it follow that we are at enmity with one another? How does that work? You know, John talks about the fact that if you know God, you're going to love your brothers and your sisters. How can you say you love the ones whom you can see? uh, Or how is it that you can't love those who are around you that you can see and say that you love a God who you cannot see? Does that make sense? That was a little bit of a tongue twister there we can't see God. We know, He's, we know He's real. We know He's present. It's much like the way the wind blows. Jesus employs that. We can't see the wind, but we see the effects of it when it moves the leaves and blows the trees. Well, we can't see God, but we've all been touched by God, radically affected by God. And, and what does that look like? It looks like us loving one another, loving each other, and so if we can't love each other, if we're going to be mad and hostile and separating from one another, how in the world can we say we love a God who we don't see? Does that make sense? And so if we are at peace with God, we must be at peace with each other. And so Paul says we've got to let the peace of God rule. It's a fascinating word, rule there. It's used of an umpire in ancient sports, you know, the one who calls the shots. We've got to let peace call the shots. We've got to let peace guide us. We have to work hard for the things that make for peace. We have to live peacefully and peaceably. Romans twelve eighteen says, "If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men." Hebrews twelve fourteen says, "Strive for peace with the, uh, with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. So we are to strive. For peace with everyone and be very cautious that we do not let a root of bitterness spring up and defile us. That's what the Word of God says. And then Paul says, be thankful. Be thankful. Now this is a key for peace. Why do I say that? Because we can often focus on the things that are not lovely and praiseworthy. And we can get upset and bitter about those things. But if we are to, if we would fix our minds and our hearts on the things that are lovely and praiseworthy and, you know, be thankful for those good things, man, that will bring, that brings great unity. And I would say this is true in marriage, very true in marriage. So, husbands and wives, this is a word for you. Be thankful for the good things in your spouse. We all know that we could come up with a list of things that annoy us greatly about the other, right? We can do that, and we probably do do that, and that's all bad. If instead we were to simply thank God for the good things in our spouse, because I am certain that we can find many good things without any challenge. If we would focus on those things and be thankful for those things, what do you think that would do in your marriage? Well, the same is true for the body of Christ. We can look around and say, you know, this person said this, or this person did that, or the pastor did this thing over here, said this thing, or he's got a, you know, whatever. Um, you know, we, if we do that, then that's, that, that can do damage. But if instead we say, man, praise the Lord for this brother or that sister. I know this is true about them. Or praise the Lord for our church. I love this about our church. You understand? Be grateful for the good things. And that will bring about great unity in our marriages, in our church, and so on. And then lastly, unity flows from remembering that it is all about Jesus. He's the main thing, amen? That would solve a lot of problems in life if we remembered that Jesus is the main thing. It's all about Him. So verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We are to be a people where the message concerning Christ and the commands of Christ are central. That's what we gather around. That's what it's about. That's what we want to be about here. This is a Jesus place. We are Jesus people. We are about the gospel. We are about Christ crucified, Christ exalted, Christ reigning. Amen? Jesus is the main thing, such that it is working its way out through the teaching and preaching. It's working its way out through our personal interactions, one with another. And it's even working its way out in our singing, especially in our singing. I love the songs that we sing. They are Christ-exalting. Amen? And that's the goal of worship. You know, there's, there's a real shift. There's been a real shift in the last century about what worship actually is. And I'm learning about this. There's actually history involved here. There's been traditional worship, and the goal of traditional worship, which is to exalt Christ, to exalt God, to exalt the Trinity, and to tell of God's good works, of His character. And of course, when that is true to you, when you know God savingly and you sing of those things, you will be uplifted by it. But there's been this shift where now worship's all about me. I need a lift. You know, the music's got to be just right. The song's got to be just right because it makes me feel some kind of way. Now we got it twisted. Now it's not about Jesus, it's about me. So we're working hard here to reverse that. I want our people to understand that that's a problem. It has not just crept into the church, it has overtaken the church. And so we want to exalt the Christ, amen? We want to sing about his person and his works, his accomplishments and his achievements. And as we do, of course, it does bless our hearts. It does move us to a deeper place of love and gratitude, and I would say that emotion should be involved. We don't want it to be just a, a bunch of you know, lifeless, robotic automatons, right? We want to be like, you know passionate about these things, fired up about Christ. And so that's what we want to be about as a church. And if that is true of us, we can walk in unity. We can overlook offenses, here because it's all about Him, right? We're living on this plane right here. All of this down here is going to be okay if we can just keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen? So we are to be a church where it's about Jesus. You know, we can overlook offenses. I can put my feelings aside because that's irrelevant, really, at the end of the day. What matters is Jesus Christ and Him exalted. Jesus Christ glorified. Amen? So that's what we need to be about. So, Kind of circling back to the beginning of the message as we transition over to the Lord's table now, you know, all of this is ultimately about the glorification of Jesus. It's all about living for Him, and, and unity really is about living for Jesus and living for each other, not ourselves so much. If we were working hard to love and know God and to serve other people, to bless other people, it kind of takes a lot of the emphasis off of me, off of I, Correct? puts it on Jesus, puts it on others. And so that's where unity comes from. And that was Paul's admonishment to the Philippians. He started in chapter 1, I think it was verse 27, and said that they were to stand together in one spirit, stand fast, strive together for the sake of the gospel, for unity. But then he moves into chapter 2. He moves into chapter 2 and he gives this very glorious example, demonstration, of the one who did that perfectly, who did it in ways that we will never ever be able to mirror perfectly Jesus. So right after Paul admonishes the people to strive together for the gospel, going right into chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Um, Sorry, Uh, being in full accord and of one mind. Then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So, that's a real prescription for unity in the church right there. Paul says, Strive together for the gospel. And then he says, Look out not to your own needs solely, but also to the needs of others, to others' interest even above your own. So there it is, folks. That's how we have unity in the church. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to show you the one who has done this in the most profound and glorious of ways, Jesus Christ. Verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we can have that. We can have this. Verse 6, he says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's what this represents. Jesus said that this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. And we know, obviously, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about his suffering. He's talking about his crucifixion and his death. And he said, I have done this for you. Paul says that as often as we do this as a church, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. And so this is a reminder to us of what Christ has done for us in his suffering and his death and his, uh, his crucifixion for us, right? Now, Paul appeals to that for unity. He says, we're to look out for the interest of others. Now, isn't that what Christ did? The one who existed in heavenly, eternal glory with the Father, but He didn't cling to that. He let that go, He set it aside, and He came to the earth. He was born of a virgin. He lived a hard life, a life of submission to His earthly parents. He kept God's law on every single point. And then he was betrayed and abandoned by those closest to him. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was scorned. He was tortured in the most horrific ways imaginable. And then on top of all of that, he suffered God's wrath as God poured his holy wrath out on his son right there on Calvary's tree. Now, he did all of that for us. He did all of that for our best interests. He did all of that for what was most the most suitable need. That was our greatest need, that we would receive forgiveness, salvation, that we would be saved from our sins and from the consequences of those sins. Christ did that for us. Now, if Christ did that for us, how much more should we be willing to do to humble ourselves and serve one another, amen, to go out of our comfort zone and to, to love and to care for one another? And so, even in communion, this represents unity, because we are coming together as one body, and we are partaking of the one sacrifice that was given for all, once for all, Jesus Christ. And so when we partake of communion, what we're saying is, Jesus, I'm receiving what you have accomplished as my very own. I am becoming one with you. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live in the flesh. I live it by faith. For the glory of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. So we are united with Christ through belief, and his accomplishments become our own as we have died with Christ and risen to newness with Christ, risen to the newness of life. And so, even in communion, we understand this idea of unity that happens between us and the Son, and this unity that happens as a body of Christ as we partake together. And ultimately, This is for the exaltation of the Son, amen? Because after Christ did all of that, Paul says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen?